That is a good man right there. I am uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, it, it, it happened a little bit by accident, but mostly by God's sovereignty. Um, there's a good friend of mine who was in my congregation for years. His name is Brian Doyle, um, and he has a ministry called Iron Sharpens Iron, a ministry of men. Um, and so when I got a call from David, it came through as Brian Doyle. Um, and, and they said, would you come and speak? And I said, of course, I do everything by relationship. And so, you know, if I have a friendship, you know, I'm there and so, so forth. So, so David calls me up and he, he's, and I, I saw the thing. It said, Brian Doyle I said, hi, Brian. He said, no, this is David. And I thought, God really wanted me to speak to this group this morning. <laughs> and, and, and I, and I love the fact that he does want me to speak. I'm going to actually set a timer. Um, it'll go off at the end of 30 minutes. I may stop. I may not. I don't know. But I, I ought to give a nod at least to the limitations and the boundaries. Um, let me tell you what we're going to do this morning. This is fun because I get, to, I get to kind of break down Ecclesiastes 4, which is a chapter that is really rich. Um, and it basically has three parts. Um, the first part um, is um, I want to contrast the difference between the writer of Ecclesiastes and Jesus because both of them see oppression. The first um, six verses of Ecclesiastes 4 is about oppression. But the writer of Ecclesiastes kind of gives up, says it's a shame, you know, that people are oppressed. It's just as a matter of fact, it'd be better for if you'd never been born because you wouldn't have to see this. Um, and, and, and essentially communicating, there's nothing we really can do about it. The, the, the verse says, in verse 6, it says, One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. In other words, you can't do anything about it. Might as well give up. Jesus had exactly the opposite approach to oppression. You know, both of them have empathy. And, and i got to tell you, that is the first ingredient um, in any relationship, in any kind of service that we do, is empathy. The most important part of any service we do is empathy. But Jesus' empathy led to action. In Matthew chapter 9... It talks about how he sees these, these people who are just oppressed. It says um, um, in verse uh, 36 through 38, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. So here's two alternatives you have. There are going to be things in your life that you can't help. You can't do anything about. My father died when I was four years old. And I went to the funeral. You don't remember a lot as a four-year-old, but I remember this. I went to the funeral, and I had this... Aunt Frances, who was a wonderful, crazy, charismatic Catholic. And, 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 and emphasis on crazy. 
Uh, uh, but she loved Jesus. I mean, she, and she wanted to teach everyone around her what was life and, and, and what counted. And so she picked me up. Picture this, four years old. She picked me up and suspended me over my father's open casket. And then she said something that terrified me. She said, touch him. I want you to touch him. And so I just reached down and I touched this cold, hard skin. And she said, he's not in there. That was the shell that he walked around in. But he's with God in heaven right now. And I wanted you to know that. So some of you have been suspended over these circumstances that have been frightening, but they have been learning experiences after you've gone through them. But there are some things you can do something about. Again, when we got home from that funeral, my mother turned to me, four years old, and she looked at me and she said, now you're the man of the house. I'm four years old. What? I'm not the man of anything. No, you're the man of the house. It's me and your sister, and you got to lead the household. You're the man of the house. And I thought, I'm in way over my head. But then she taught me what being the man of the house was. We would go to the grocery store, and it would be time to pay the cashier. The man of the house pays the cashier. So I would step in front of the cashier having absolutely no money. And she would slip into my hand just as I was, just as the cashier said, that'll be so-and-so. She would slip into my hand just enough money to pay the bill. We would, we, the, the, the bill collectors would come to the door. She'd say, you're the man of the house. You've got to go to the door. And I'd go to the door. And they'd say, it'll be such and such. And I knew I had no money whatsoever. And she would slip into my hand just, just at the right moment. And so here's, here's what it is to be in the man of the house. To understand you have no resources of your own. But you have a father who will give you what you need when you need it. Amen. That's a, I've operated my whole life way beyond myself. Way, I'm, I've always been in situations that think, what in the world am I doing in this situation? I am totally inadequate for this situation. But I knew that I was the man at the moment because my mom taught me that I could trust that I would be provided with what I needed at the time I needed it. That's what it is. And so we face these overwhelming issues in our world. And we can do one or two things. We can say, well, that's, you know, that's too bad. I feel bad for them. You know, the, you know, but Jesus said the poor would always be with you. So what are we going to do? You know, can't cure it. Or we can respond knowing we are grossly inadequate to address this. But God's going to give us what we need to do our part when it's time. That's the first part. Of Ecclesiastes 4. Now let me get to the middle part, which I think is the, probably the most important part, and it's the one you've heard. It's the relational part. Let me tell you something about Satan. Satan's got one strategy, just one. We could see it from in the, in the, in the garden when the serpent came, 
And the, the, Satan's whole strategy is to get you isolated, to, especially if he can get you to self-isolate. That's his whole strategy. You remember in chapter 3 where he comes and, and uh, well, first of all, let me, before Satan, let's talk about God so you can see what he's attacking. We were made for relationships. It says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God took the man and put him into the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now, this is before the woman ever appears. Men had jobs before they had wives. We are still better at our jobs than we are with our wives. But that's a whole other sermon. The point is, that was the only place after Genesis 1 where God kept going, and, and all of creation, oh, it's good. Oh, that's good. Oh, I like that. That's good. The only place in the whole creation story where God says it's not good is Genesis 2, 18, where he looks at the man and he says it's not good that the man should be alone. Now, why did he, does he say that? First, two reasons. First of all, if we're made in the image of God, God himself is a relationship. When it says, and God said, let us make man in our image. He's not talking to the angels. Angels can't make anything. The only, there's only one creator. But the, the, the Hebrew word is Elohim. It's a plural word used in a singular sense. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet one. And so God himself is a relationship. If we are to truly be in his image, we have to be in relationship. But not just any relationship. There's a special kind of relationship he wants us to have. He looks at the woman. He looks at the man. Says, I'll make a, suit, a helper suitable for him. And the Hebrew here, the, the words are, I will make uh, one who corresponds with him. Uh, literally, it means one who talks back. The Hebrew definition of a wife is one who talks back. <laughs> it's, it's the truth. It's the truth. And, 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 and now watch this. Now watch this. He didn't make the woman right away, did he? What did he do? He, he brought the animals before the man and, and, and had him name them. You know what, the, what, the, what that was about? He was looking for a date. He, was, he wasn't just going aardvark, buffalo. He was going aardvark. You know, can you talk to me? Will you correspond with me? Is there anything... We know that because at the end of that, it says there was not one found suitable for him. So therefore, there was not one enough like him to be intimate. And so after that exercise, he takes the woman out of the man so that she's enough like him, watch this, to be intimate. But watch what happens next. And the Bible says, and he brought her to the man in this ancient pageantry of the father bringing the bride. Isn't this, this is so rich. The father is bringing the bride to the groom. He brought her to the man. Now watch. Why did he have to bring her? Because she was in a different spot. 
She was in a different place. She saw things differently. So here's the key. Here's why God made us like he did. Here's the kind of relationship he wants us to have. Not just in marriage, but in life. The same principle is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it talks about there's a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There, 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 there's, there's one body, yet many members. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The head cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. They're different, but they need each other. So here's the key. He made us for relationships where we're enough alike to be close, but different enough to be necessary. Because if you're not a little bit irritated in your relationships, did you, have you noticed that wives can be a little bit irritating? <laughs> you, you think maybe I, 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 I you know, married the wrong person because she really irritates me. No, you married the right person. Because that's what learning is. That's the perspective that we don't have, that we need to have, and that's why it's irritating. Because it doesn't agree with us. And it doesn't agree with us because we need to know something else in order to do our jobs well. It's such a, a key part. Now, uh, let me go back to the strategy of Satan. The strategy of Satan is always, and you see it in the very next chapter, um, the strategy of Satan is um, incrementally to distance you from the very people you need. When he came, and he, and he does this by, starts with doubt. I'm not sure about you. I'm not sure about you. You know, when, when, the, when the serpent comes, he just plants doubt. Did God say that you shouldn't eat of any tree of the garden? We said just the opposite. You can have every tree, except one. But now we're thinking about the one thing we can't have. We're not thinking about all that is available to us. And so we're starting to doubt the goodness of God. We think God's maybe trying to keep something from us. That's our whole perspective of God now. There's a doubt that grows. And then he, he puts us, no, we put ourselves in front of what we can't have. Really bad idea. Really bad idea. Distance has a place and distance should always be the main um, 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 quality of our relationship with temptation. Distance yourself. Re flee temptation, the Bible says. Flee. But no, they're standing right there. And, 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 and so they're starting to reason with themselves. You know, well, you know, the tree's good for food. It's a delight to the eyes. You know, it's desirable to eat and so on and so forth. You know, you rationale, you rationalize why you should do what you shouldn't do. You know, what's it going to kill you? As a matter of fact, you know. And then after they partake, after they internalize, that's what they're partaking is. They didn't just 
eat an apple. They internalized evil. They internalized that voice of separation. They separate from one another. So the key, the, 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 one of the key benefits of a group like this, and especially the discipleship groups that follow, is those relationships we need. Because if you isolate, my, I lost my son because he self-isolated. He was a closet alcoholic. None of us knew. None of us knew. And the more he went down that path, those of you who know anything about addiction know that the shame and, 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 and the, 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 the decision-making, I, I, I use that term loosely, because if you're an addict of any sort, physiologically, you have an impaired decision-making process. You don't have a rational decision-making process. Many of you know this. Many of you have been there. But as he self-isolated, and, 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 and the, whole, the, the devil got him where he needed him, where he could whisper in his ear, it'll never get any better. No one will love you. No one will accept you. And he finally committed suicide because the devil could separate him from the very ones who loved him and would stick with him no matter what. The devil could whisper those things in his ear because he had no one around him to tell him differently, to tell him the truth. You see? So this strategy of Satan, very important. But the strategy of God is even more important. And this is the key. The key is not that you have to, you don't have to, Get close to everyone you see. You know, it's, it's, that's not going to happen. As a matter of fact, you've got to be a little discerning. Because sometimes it's really good for you to not get close to some people. I, I, I remember this story. I love this story. Fourth grade, the teacher was trying to get the, her kids to be able to write paragraphs. And, and so she came in one day and, and she said to the class, you know, I want you to write me a, 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 a romance story, you know. Well, the boys in the fourth grade don't want to write a romance story. And, so that, and she said, when you get done, you know, I, you know, just stand up and I want you to stand up and read what you've written. Well, everybody's, you know, writing the stories. I mean, little Jimmy, third row back, is done in a minute. In a minute. He just lays his pen down. And she said, Jimmy, are you done? He said, I am. She said, we... Would you stand up and read what you wrote? He said, sure. He stood up, and this was his romance story. He said, will you marry me? She said, no. And they lived happily ever after. <laughs> you, you, don't have to, you don't have to bond with everyone. But you need some folks who are enough like you to be close, but different enough to make you better at what you do. When I was in high school, I went to this little tiny high school, and, and we had a football team. Football was everything in Ohio. It was, it was the deal. Um, and, and, and everything, and, and this was before the divisions of high school according to size. 
There, there were no Division One and Division Two and Division Six and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and and so tiny, tiny town. The biggest, the biggest buildings were the grain elevators, but uh, for the farmers by by far, you know. Um, and we had this football team, um, and and we were, we were. We were slow. We were, we were small. We were small. I played on the line. <laughs> 140 pounds soaking wet, and I played on the line. I was a linebacker on defense. We went both ways back then. But I, linebacker on defense, but I played on the line. That's how tiny we were. We were slow. We were small. And we were nice. We were nice kids. You know, we didn't talk smack. We helped our opponents up. Nice play. You know, everything says that we should have lost every game. We went undefeated in Ohio. We were ranked ninth in the state in Ohio. There was no earthly reason why we should have been that good, except one, we had a coach who taught us what it was to be a team, what it was to sacrifice for one another, what it was to look out for each other and to play together in such a coordinated fashion, we couldn't be beaten, literally couldn't be beaten. I remember one game, we can get into high school football stories after this, but I was... I, 140 pounds, Stan Arnhold, Ashland, Ohio, 275 pounds of mean, of mean. If he had gotten to any of our running backs or our quarterbacks, he'd have broke them in two. But he never got, he never got to them. You know why? Because I spent all night saying impolite things about his mother. <laughs> And, and, and accusing him or speculating on certain parts of his anatomy that not, might not have been adequate. And so he spent all night beating the tar out of me. I mean, I needed traction after that game. I was black and blue, but that's what we did. We sacrificed our own health so that no one else got hurt. He couldn't get to my quarterback because he was preoccupied with me, you see? And so that's what a team is. A team is sacrificing so that your brother can do well. Watch this. And in doing so, you do your job better. Because there's no way I would have had the strength to, to actually block this guy. He was too fast. He was too strong. He was too powerful. And so, so God makes us for these relationships. And, and, and let me go back to Ecclesiastes. And this is some of the most famous verses in the Bible. Because it talks about two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either, either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together to keep warm, how can, will one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of, you, you know this word, three strands. 
Where'd that third strand come from? Yeah, that's the Lord. That's the Lord. This is how the Lord is binding together a relationship. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. And so it's important for us to understand God's plan for us is relationship. Um, and uh, the only thing wrong with these things, I've got my face in front of here. Come on. Okay. Oh, I got six minutes left. Ah, I got six minutes left. Okay. Let me let me do let me do the um, let me let me go to the last part of this, and then I'll come back if I got time. The third part of this. Um, this particular chapter is about the passing importance of political power. Now I know a little something about this, um, and so and so let me let me tell you what I understand um, about this this wisdom that says, um, well, even if you become a king, um, you know somebody else is going to come in, and then you're not one anymore. Um, and, and, so, and so I learned very early in life, partially become a, because I come from a long line of alcoholics. That's why I won't touch the stuff because I know there's, a, there's some sort of gen, genetic predisposition toward not just alcohol but any kind of addiction. Um, but I know because my mom was an alcoholic that the failure the, 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 the treatment and the intervention of, of any kind of addiction does not go well if you try it by coercion. You know, uh, you, you, the coercion doesn't work. Well, what is politics? What is government? It's coercion. There's a place for government. There's a place for policy. There's a place for public safety, there's a place for the armed forces, there's a place for government entity. There's, there's a place for all these things. There's a place and a time for everything, as you learned in, a, in Ecclesiastes uh, uh, chapter 3. But Ecclesiastes 4, it talks about the ineffectiveness. I can remember going to my mom and lecturing her and shaming her and pouring all of her bottles of liquor down the, down the drain and, and, and none of it worked. As a matter of fact, it probably worked just the opposite, you know? She, she felt worse, so she needed to drink more. I didn't know that as a kid, and I've forgiven myself since because you, you can't hold yourself, you know, um, for ransom for the rest of your life. That's, that's what grace is. We are saved by grace, and, and we're saved by believing that we are forgiven because we are forgiven. We only operate on what we know. But I got to tell you, this last portion here is all about the difference between service and political power. There is a sense in which if you get, get to know enough people in high places, I, I, I've, for some reason, God has this great sense of humor. Has this uh, has put me in realms of political power I've never, I've never anticipated. Only God could have done it. M many of you know I was a spiritual advisor to President Obama for um, eight years. Wrote uh, 
wrote him um, scriptures uh, or, or devotions uh, out of scripture every week. He started every day out of the Bible. Nobody knew that um, because he didn't wear his religion on his sleeve. I heard him many times tes testify to his faith in Christ. Um, um, but when, and when we, we and we became friends when I when I prayed with him in the, in the Oval Office often. Um, he never wanted to pray for himself. It was always about the person in need that he had just heard about. Um, and it's weird when you're going down the road and you, and you, and you get this call um, from your friend who happens to be the president who has just made a decision he knows is going to get you in trouble with your conservative religious brothers. Um, but he thinks it's the right thing to do as the president of all the country. Um, he, he called me up just, to, he, he said, I just did an interview on ABC and I'm coming out for gay marriage. And I said, well, Mr. President, I don't see that in scripture. And he said, I know. He said, but let me tell you why I did it. And then he explained his rationale about the difference between civil law um, and religious covenant. Um, and, um, and, 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 and again, I saw his compassion. He was, you stick this guy and compassion comes out. But, but, um, but I realized what the call was you know, on into it. He wasn't looking for religious counsel. He wasn't looking for spiritual advice. He called me up because he knew I would be beat up for his decision because of our relationship, and he was trying to protect me. He was trying to guard a friend. So let me tell you the most important part of that conversation. The most important part of that conversation is not what he did as a president. Because, you know, policies will be reversed, new people will come in, it all goes away, you know, and, 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 and laws and policies are always up for either reversal or for um, um, some sort of adjustment. But that friendship will never go away. That caring about each other will never go. Those prayers will never go away. Those times when we share it in God's word, that will never go away. That's the most important part of, of life. And that's the most important part of relationship with each other. And let me tell you why um, I, 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 I speak that to you this morning. What you're doing in this place is you are building things of eternity. You are focusing on God's word, which is eternal, which never goes away, which never fades away. You are building relationships that will last for an eternity. And you are building relationships that will serve this. I will stop that will serve this community in ways that will communicate the goodness of the God who has loved you when you weren't worthy, who has loved you because of his own reasons, not because of your reasons. You do what you do in this community so that when people see your good works, they may give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And I want to say to you, Thank you. Amen.